we're all there. We made it. <laughs> we always have tech issues. <laughs> we have so many. Oh my gosh. I spend so much of my day on video calls for work. Not even funny. <laughs> so you're very familiar with the process. <laughs> oh my God. And my team does a lot of video and audio recording because we produce a lot of e learning, corporate training. We have to tinker around all the time with video settings, audio settings, production, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yes, I know the pain. Super fun. <laughs> That's the part that people don't think about when they think about doing something you know, like this. All the behind the scenes work that goes into that little like 30, 40 minutes that you listen to. <laughs> Yeah, all the post-production and all the thought that went into it. Yeah, yes, exactly. It's like cooking a meal, right? Takes two, three hours, make a big meal, and then it's gone in 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Funny. So this is going to be episode 34, right? Yeah, wow. Yeah. Wow. Your audience is growing. Yes, it is. And we're super tickled pink. <laughs> yes, it's, it's exciting and it's scary, right? When it does, goes real well, you're like, oh, shit, yeah. it's going well. That familiar feeling. I know it well. Yeah, our last guest was a woman from a different cult. It was terrifying how identical it was, like terrifying. It'd be really nice to start hearing from some other cults and people that have left that super dogmatic type of living because we just get in such a little bubble. Let me just say there's nothing new in this world. Trying to control other people and trying to dominate them, looking for people's weaknesses and exploiting them, that's old. Yes. And you have had evil people doing that for thousands of years. And they have succeeded at doing it because they know how to find followers. Yep. And there's always people out there who are going to fall into a cult. You have to have some demons. You have to be carrying something. You have to be easily persuaded or you have to want to be persuaded. Yes. But yeah, you can fall into that. Yeah. It's really really a rabbit hole my parents fell down into. (laughs) It's such an allure to not just the power, but the thinking that you're special, that you're some elite group in some way. That's almost always the clincher. Yeah, we're elite. And then all these rules don't apply to us. I know everyone (laughs) else has to go and get a job and be responsible, but we don't because we're going to fly up into the sky and none of this shit matters. F my bills, F my responsibilities to my children, to society. Screw it. I've always wanted to be a hippie anyway. This gives me the perfect (laughs) template where I can just say F you to everything and nothing will matter. Yeah. Not even the children I'm putting into this world because it's all going to blow up anyway. That's a (laughs) a very easy way out that ends up not being very easy in the long run. It seems easy right then and there. Yeah. I was going to ask what circumstances your parents or mother or whatever joined. My father, he is from the Caribbean. 
He's Dutch from the Caribbean. Okay. My mother is American, white girl, all American, somewhere from Illinois or some somewhere there. And yeah. I felt this dark. You know, what you'd expect somebody from the Bahamas. <laughs> they met in France. They didn't know each other. They were traveling through France and they met some hippies. They met through the children of God and somehow were paired off and told that they were getting married. Of course, because that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are a very mismatched pair, to say the Aww. least. If I could put two people together, it would never be those two people. I was born in Portugal, and I had a total of five brothers and sisters. So there's six of us, mm. which for cult families is very small. <laughs> I am the eldest. Most of my life was spent uh, proselytizing, generally in the street. So... Mm the glorified version of begging so very humiliating spending a lot of time asking people for coins or for fair change in exchange for pieces of literature or whatever we had sometimes it was very cold because we lived in the north of japan where it was close to siberia weather i'm sure uh, i know you guys have talked a lot about russia so you know what cold is <laughs> So, yeah, being outdoors in that kind of weather with not appropriate clothing, just freezing to death, nearly getting frostbitten. Or if I was in South America, just being burnt to a crisp, just <laughs> unbeating on your head, <laughs> covered in blisters. So I spent a lot of my childhood doing that. I had some really interesting experiences. One of them was when we lived in Brazil, my parents decided their new mission was in China with three kids. They just didn't know how to get to China from Brazil. They hitchhiked on a cargo ship. Oh my gosh. With three small children. <laughs> and we were stuck on that ship for 40 days because it went all the way, the long way around the world until it ended in Hong Kong. Like stopped like all these random islands and places. It was a cargo ship. There's nothing to do. So we were just kids running up and down that ship magically we didn't fall off because there weren't any you know protections it wasn't like a cruise ship or anything when i was in in the hong kong macau area i lived in macau we lived very close to the ranch where berg's children and grandchildren lived yeah so i did spend some time with quite a few of berg's grandchildren on the weekends and things like that interesting that, that big farm they had with the animals and they took over this whole island and all that. Yeah. So, yeah. That was pretty interesting. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah. How long were you there in Macau? Uh, not long, like a little over a year, maybe. In, oh, Japan, okay. it was, in Japan, it was five years. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't think my story is any different from a lot of other Kids my age, a lot of abuse, quite frankly, sexual abuse. The cult was rampant with pedophiles. Mm -hmm. And my parents were really quite helpless and quite weak. And I think in many cases participated in things that are certainly not legal in America to do. 
But then again, we're going back to what kind of people join cults, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this pervy old alcoholic pedophile is telling me to do this. Sounds like a plan. Let me write that down. Let me go do it right now. You know, <laughs> really? <laughs> like, to what point do you lose yourself until you're meekly following instructions that are clearly morally wrong and you know in your heart to be wrong? Yeah. Like, who has to tell you that being a pedophile is wrong? <laughs> you know, like, what? <laughs> It's just a lot of a lot of not knowing where the line is, a lot of not knowing what normal mm-hmm. is when you grow up in that circumstance. You don't have a frame of reference for how life should be. You yes. Just, you come to accept how it is, really. And yeah, so we did that in Europe. We started with the really big homes, which you guys know, like the 100, 200 people homes. Yeah. And... <laughs> It got real bad in Brazil, in Sao Paulo. That was when they had all those big raids in Argentina. Argentina is a neighboring country to Brazil. And so first they took all of the cult's children away in Argentina. And then the cult had to go back and rescue them one by one. And they evacuated Argentina. So a huge amount of cult members who were in Argentina moved to Brazil. And many of them were absorbed into these big combo homes. Those homes got to a point where we were going hungry. Like we had to send people out on road trips. They're not fun trips to Disney. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're trips where you wander around and hitchhike and beg for food. And sometimes yeah. sleep in a park or sleep in the open air. Sometimes we talk about how we feel ourselves like we got arrested in adolescence because we never had that chance to go out and mm-hmm. figure out our identity and stuff. But in thinking about these cults that came out of that hippie era mm-hmm. where sort of anything went and people weren't really thinking about consequences of any kind, it's almost like our parents got arrested in that world. Yes. They are incapable of planning, incapable of managing basic finances, (laughs) incapable of creating a plan that has milestones and step by step. And this is what the end goal is going to be. You're literally just every day waking up and just rolling out of bed and doing whatever comes, Mm. you know. Yeah, because all those years, like you said, on the road or out in the streets telling, so dangerous. Like the kind of things that happen to us on the street, people that tried to grab us, like all kinds of crazy ass stuff. (laughs) And I was like, oh, cool. This was such a successful day. (laughs) Such a great day. I remember having to sing, so many singing, singing. And we had this thing where we would sing in restaurants and we would be so hungry. It'd be so hard not to be staring at people's food while we were singing. And we had like maybe some old bread, really stale bread. With, I don't know what was on it. In the van, those panel vans with a mattress on the floor and 26 children sitting in the back, bouncing all around in the heat with no AC. One of them gets sick and starts puking. All the other kids start puking and you bounce around and you find a place and you jump out and you sing. And then you... <laughs> go back in and you bounce around some more and you spend an entire summer, an entire Christmas season doing that. I remember if I would be at a restaurant, just imagining myself 
how nice it must be to sit down and have somebody serve you food. Like that to me was like, wow. Or if you were going door to door and somebody would open the door of their house and you could look in and they would have a complete set of couches that matched. And maybe they even had a carpet (laughs) and their kids would be there watching TV. And I would just look inside and be like, wow, can you imagine they must be kings, (laughs) absolute kings to be living like that. (laughs) Spending most of your childhood as an outsider, like just feeling that kind of shame, that kind of shame of you don't deserve any of these great things. None of these great things are for you. Yeah. And don't even think about them, really, because they're not coming for you. Your job is whatever to to be doing this because you're serving the Lord, whatever that means. It's funny now when you sit down in a restaurant and you're served or when you take a plane ride or, oh, I don't like the way this couch looks in my living room. I'm going to change it. The color is no good. Now I'm that person. And I always think, wow, how did I get how did I make that leap from that to that? Yeah. Um, But yeah, so there was a lot of that. There was also a lot of adventures because with sometimes it was extremes like constant supervision and threat of punishment and silence restriction and all this stuff. And then there was the other extremes where you're like just sent on the road and you can hear system music, which is basically any music that's not called music (laughs) or see Madonna on the television or something (laughs) or ride in someone's car and they're going to play rock music or something. So your life has extremes of extreme control and extreme nothingness with no boundaries at all, where you're just free falling and it goes from one extreme to the other. Yeah. My brother, he was one who just could not get with the plan. He could not get with the program. He, I'm sure, at a minimum had ADD, but I think he had a lot of other problems. He was very defiant. And mm-hmm. I, I I know how to lie. I know how to bullshit. I know when to shut up and how to not get whooped. And I know how to say the right things and nod my head and blink my eyes and be okay. But not everybody... Not everybody can lie to themselves in the way that I was able to lie to myself. My ability to lie to myself is still propagates into my life where I shut down anything that truly is my truth because I'm so used to having to shut that down in order to survive. So understanding, oh, this is an emotion I have. And this is what that feels like. And this is what I should do in regards to it. I should communicate it to others. I never could communicate how I was thinking and feeling because I knew I would get, you know, in huge trouble. But my brother, he was different. He he just couldn't. He just couldn't hold it down. He didn't have the amount of self-control. And he was a person who was, he, he was who he was. So this kid, everything you can imagine. The signs on silence restriction, living alone, isolated in a trailer with some uncle who was doing God knows what to him. And hard labor and the fields and in the sun and just all the isolation and the do not talk to me for months and all that kind of thing. He just got progressively worse and worse. And my parents were ashamed of him because he wasn't a good cult baby. So (laughs) they kept trying to farm him out to relatives, 
or to uh, TSers. Oh, hey, take my kid. I don't want him. He's too much trouble for me. He was giving them too much trouble in their homes. They wanted to be leaders and they wanted to be respected and the cult. And how could you do that if your kid was a problem kid? So you can't spank it out of him no matter how hard you try. So now let's try and find somebody else who wants him. So they kept pushing him around, sending him to relatives, sending him here, sending him there. Of course, for him, I can only imagine it must have been horrible to be rejected like that. They kicked him out. Sometimes he was living in the same city as other large homes, but nobody was allowed to speak to him. So he would come by walking. Let's say we were begging in the street somewhere at a stoplight or something. He would come walking by to try and say hello, but nobody was allowed to talk to him. So he was effectively isolated. And he was, what, 14, 15? He was a child. And he was really on his own from a very young age. And completely abandoned. We were in Sao Paulo in Brazil. When I was uh, my last month of 17, I became pregnant from my boyfriend, who was another cult baby. Think about this. What kinds of people join cults? People who have problems, really. Okay. Those people have children. Those children have inherited whatever from your parents, right? You and trauma, they say take seven generations, it's passed down. So you're thinking mental problems, you're thinking the trauma that they had that caused them to join a cult. So two cult people have children. Okay, that's already level. And then those cult children have children with each other. And a whole bunch of us, our generation had children with other cult So I think we created unknowingly a whole bunch of kids who just need a lot more help and support than maybe the average kid has, because in some cases they themselves were born under such difficult circumstances. And then they carry the weight of multiple generations of shit. So anyway, I had my daughter when I was 18 in South America in Brazil during that time, I, it was slippery, like we were slowly leaving. We rented a house with a bunch of other young adults, a whole bunch mm-hmm. of us. I don't know, five, six, seven. And we started like flexing, like understanding what we could and couldn't do. It became apparent that we needed work because no amount of selling CDs in gas stations or at stoplights. Who's really going to cut it? So a lot of us started finding work. And, and when you're in a place like South America, one of your best assets is your language skills. So a lot of us started teaching English. Never mind that I did not have any education whatsoever. <laughs> I lived in a lot of these homes. I don't know if this happened to you where they would fake school records just in case we got caught. And they went through all this trouble to fake grades for all these different subjects that I supposedly was taught. And I was thinking, wow, if you went through half as much trouble just to teach it to me, that'd be great. (laughs) But I was very lucky that almost everyone in the family and the children of God could read or write. So I was a very good reader. And that really saved me. Although I, I will say a lot of the kids who were not American, like Brazilian and some in Asia and stuff like that, they had even worse education because they 
weren't educated in their native languages and then some <laughs> smattering of whatever their native language was with English. Some of my friends, they were barely literate, quite frankly, <laughs> barely literate. So I was like a genius because I could <laughs> I totally get that. <laughs> and I was a smart ass too. So I was always getting in trouble for, you mm-hmm. know, for correcting adults or whatever. So I tried not to do too much of that. So anyway, we started teaching English and a lot of my friends were not, you know, necessarily native English speakers, but they were ex cult members my age. So I taught them English so they could teach English. And we were all English teachers. God knows what the hell we were talking about. But I I did a couple of training courses at the schools, English schools where I worked. And so I learned, oh, this is what, this is a continuous verb. This is past perfect. This is present perfect. This is an article. This is a noun. So I learned that so I could teach it. A funny big word definitely didn't cut it. Didn't cut it. No. And uh, so, yeah, that's when, you know, the rebellion started bit by bit. It was slid out. It's not like anyone said, you're excommunicated now. It just happened gradually over the course of like maybe a year and a half. But in in my city, the group I was with, we were the first. And so we basically proved that it was possible. (laughs) And it was really tough because the I would work for a language school and they would send me all over town to teach in these different offices. Like it was teaching adults. Yeah. But I had to take buses all over town and that's hard and climbing on buses, going here, going there. And I was always broke. I was always $1 away from being homeless, $1 away from not eating. <laughs> it was just like constant treading water. And then I got pregnant again. How old were you at this point? 20. Okay. So now I have two babies, but I was still hustling. So I scraped together to buy a car. It took me like three years to get enough money to get a down payment on a car. But I, until then, I was just hustling, really hustling. Yeah. I'm talking like 14, 16 hour days trying to make it work. And I had to you know, pay somebody to watch my kids so I could do it. And that's cheap in South America. And it was just, I don't know how we made it through. Because if you, if I was in the United States, we would have gotten Section A, we would have gotten food stamps. Mm. All that was foreign to me. And I was in a foreign country operating under all, everything I knew was that. And my brother he had been alone wandering through Sao Paulo, Brazil for years at that point. It was bad for him. He he found drugs. I think we all found drugs. But most <laughs> of us most of us figured out how to like not find them that much. So he was pretty much on the streets of yeah. 14 with maybe when he was 14 he was in TSR's homes. But yeah. maybe I would say 16 or so. Yeah. So he did the same thing, teaching English. And it's just an utter feeling of abandonment, complete and utter abandonment to be in a country that's not your own, where you have to learn to speak that language and you have to hustle and you have to know the streets and you have to find your way around with no parental help at all. My parents, they were really busy serving the Lord. (laughs) And 
helping and rescuing lost sheep, primarily in Venezuela and Africa. And I always was like, but didn't the Lord give you children? Aren't those, aren't you accountable for the, the souls you put into this world? But no, it was more important to help strangers and rescue them and save them. So my, my brother, he ended up dying of an overdose. And I was alone. I was 22 and he was 20. And I was alone in a foreign country with a dead brother. You were with him when he... I arrived right as he was expiring, yes. And that's something you can't unsee. Mm-mm. And uh, I'd never buried somebody. I didn't know how that worked. So imagine like trying to run around this big city where everything is strange and trying to figure out how to bury your brother by yourself with two kids. My ex, he's a very troubled person, but he was kind enough to take the kids while I figured out how to bury my brother. And I had to sign off on the autopsy. That wasn't nice. And I had to go get him some clean clothes and I put the best clothes I could on him and buried him by myself. I called my parents to let them know. And honestly, I told them, this is your son. Like, I'm carrying this burden for you. I had to watch him die. I had to bury him. But this is because of your actions. This is because of how you decided to discard him and dispose him like he was meaningless to you because you didn't like the way he was behaving. Now you're one son down, and I'm going to carry that for our family. I'm the only person who carries it for our family because I'm the only person who was there to deal with it. So anyway, that was a very dark time. But if you're a mom, you, you can't give yourself that luxury. You got you to gotta buck up. <laughs> like the next day, I had to go back to work. And I couldn't miss any of my classes or miss any of my appointments. Because if I did, I wouldn't be able to feed the kids. So just had to hustle. Had to keep hustling through that. And so there's just a lot of times where it's just you don't feel like you're worth anything. Good things happening to everyone else. How can everyone else just wake up and go about their day and not worry about basic life things? <laughs> We're like, what is happening? Am I on like some really big episode of Punked? Yeah. <laughs> At some point, if somebody's going to jump out and be like, oh, just kidding <laughs> wasn't that funny but <laughs> it just never happened and so I, I I think I became very hardened mm-hmm. really hardened just being used to being treated like trash since I was very small and being used to being the worthless person I I really struggled to have relationships normal relationships with people just normal, even normal professional relationships. Like I couldn't figure out how to read people because I was so used to being manipulated all the time. I couldn't figure out when somebody was just being friendly or when they were trying to screw me over. 
Mm-hmm. I couldn't figure out when they were laughing at me or laughing with me. It was just maybe that's how it feels when you're autistic and you can't read the room. You can't tell mm-hmm. what people's intentions are. So I became like very distant with everybody and very hardened. Didn't have time to be vulnerable. Didn't have time to have that kind of space in my life. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was tough. And then my look changed. <laughs> I met a really decent guy, not a cult member, but somebody who did experience a lot of hardship when they were young and was raised by a single mom and worked hmm. worked since they were an adolescent and whatnot. And clearly he saw something in me. He saw something beautiful in me. I don't think anyone else saw anything beautiful in me. But he did. And it was very difficult. Even now today, like I struggle with, like I said, being really true to myself and truly having that intimacy in the sense of being transparent about what's in your mind and and how you feel and what your thoughts are. Yeah. So, yeah, he helped me a lot. He helped me. I I, I moved into with him, with my kids. My, My baby daddy was off the deep end, just behaving in very bizarre ways and had an explosive temper and had a drug problem and just all kinds of weird shit. I don't really blame him, though, because I knew what he had to deal with. He, He had it bad like me and my brother, so it was not like... I can't fault him for that. Everyone has their ways of dealing with things. And I think he's actually a good good person, but you can't have that combination. (laughs) You can't have two severely damaged people at a time. So I I can't. Well, you can. (laughs) Just doesn't go very well. (laughs) Uh, That's what my marriage is. (laughs) Yeah, he did very destructive things. Like when he would argue with me, he would kidnap one of the kids and not let me see them for weeks on end. Oh my God. So, you know, exactly. So created trauma in the kids that was unnecessary due to his being very explosive temper and not knowing how to deal with disagreements. His own, like everything was a nuclear option. And (laughs) I had to keep my kids safe from that because the eldest one remembers those kinds of things and is still terrorized by the feeling of being dragged away and brought back and dragged away and brought back. So anyway, I met a guy, nice guy, moved in with him. He offered to help me. He said, look, I can see you're hustling. If you move in with me, at least you can can start to save up some money. You won't be always living hand to mouth. And it was really the first time that I actually felt that somebody loved me. Like they weren't getting anything from me. Other than just me, I had nothing to offer. I'm just burnt. But yeah, he liked me for me. And he loved my children because he loved them. I don't know why. And offered, let me help pay for school for one of them. Let's put them in sports. Just like things I couldn't imagine. Like what? My kids are going to do sports? (laughs) Is it it still in Brazil? (laughs) This is in Brazil, yes. My kids are going to do sports and, oh, my God, I'm going to live in an apartment. I'm going to have furniture in my apartment, believe it or not, because I had lived in houses with no furniture. I'm going to have more than one pair of shoes. This is amazing. And after giving it much thought, 
I said, you know what? I want to move back. I want to move to the United States. I'm American. I've never lived in the United States. I have this passport. It's good for something. And if I move to the United States, maybe I can go to school. And then maybe I can make something better for myself. The dream of the immigrant. I know I'm American, but I I had the immigrant's dream. Are we all immigrants? (laughs) It's so weird because, oh, DACA, these people from South America, let them live their American dream. I'm like, yeah, how about there's a lot of us too who had the same thing, right? We could have been living the American dream. And I say that sarcastically, but we could have been living it all along and we just decided to live it in our 20s and 30s. So we moved. First, I had to move to the United States. I had to get find work here and make enough money to sponsor him and my children. Okay. So, yeah, because that's how it works. The Americans yeah. sponsor the non-Americans. So he's Brazilian. So he followed you to the States. He followed me to the United States, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, no, that's beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah. And he he actually had two uh, children from a previous relationship. So shortly after we moved here, and I don't know why we thought this was a great idea. I didn't think it was a great idea, but he wanted it so bad. Let's move his two kids over too. So we raise all four of our kids together in America. On paper, it's great. Mm -hmm. But I was the only English-speaking person. I was having to support a family that now had four children. (laughs) (laughs) And you're fluent in Portuguese then? I am fluent in Portuguese and in Spanish. Nice. Wow. Amazing. Both. Yeah. That's yeah. impressive. You <laughs> know, if you've lived in those countries, it's like basic. You know this too, right? <laughs> yeah. I speak pretty good Russian. I wouldn't say I'm yes. fluent and my Spanish is not terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't say I'm fluent. No, I'm fluent enough to like work, have full-time work in South America in those languages. Wow. It's a skill that served me. And I'll tell you more about that. So we moved here and my husband, God bless him. He, it took him a while to learn English. Once he learned English, he was okay, but it was still kind of entry level work. And so I'm like, okay, I, I got, I got to go to school. This is why I came here. This is like the whole point of the whole exercise. Right. Right. So I'm like, okay, step one, I need a high school diploma. You, you have no help. There's nobody to give you a roadmap. There's mm-hmm. nobody to show you a path. Most people our age, they have a whole prescribed sequence and set of steps, and there's a path. Yeah, oh, yeah. this comes before this, and this comes next, and that comes next. It's like having a puzzle. When you buy the puzzle box, has the final image of what it's supposed to look like, so you know what you're building. But this is like <laughs> getting all these puzzle pieces, and some pieces are missing, clearly but you don't actually know what the final puzzle is going to be. You know, these might as well be cornflakes I'm looking at because I don't know what what I'm supposed to do with all of these things. So anyway, I got, there was a, like a CD-ROM that they gave me at the community college. that was supposed to help me prep for my GED. Got a job. Every job I ever got, I had to bluff my way into it. So I would always bullshit what I knew and where I went to school and, what I could do and make up work history. After a while, I didn't have to make up work history because I had plenty of work history. I just had to make up my qualifications. (laughs) (laughs) So I did one of those things and I got a job as an executive administrator. 
for a guy who had a, a pretty decent sized company. And that was really good because I learned so many practical things. Oh, he needed bookkeeping. Let me install this bookkeeping software. Let me <laughs> figure out how to do his bookkeeping. Oh, he needed me to keep his calendar. Okay, let me figure out how this calendar app works. Oh, he needs me to do the banking. Okay, let me go to the bank and understand how to deposit checks. And nobody showed me how to file papers, but I made up my own filing system and filed the papers away. And so, you know, that was how it was. Like everything was just, let me look at it. Let me make shit up and let me just see if I can have a go of it. You just have to be very brave and really good at bullshitting. And I was great at bullshitting because my whole life I had to bullshit to the cult that I was a good girl and then bullshit to the people we were begging, telling them that we had some great social mission, which we did not. Lying is something that is ingrained in your head and second nature to you when you grow up in a cult. This wasn't really lying. It was embellishing. So anyway, I embellished why. <laughs> <laughs> So I got a lot of practical, like real life experience for things. Then I got this little, you know, CD-ROM with this GED and I'm trying to play it. And I figured, okay, I can skip the reading. I can skip the writing. I got to the math. Hmm. What are all these X's and Y's in parentheses? Yeah. <laughs> What's this little two and a tiny little two in the top right hand corner? What does it mean? <laughs> I must have spent at least a month looking at all those math problems and trying to figure them out. And then I was tired of that. I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to go and take this test. Yeah. I don't care. I'm tired of this. I can't keep looking at this CD rock. <laughs> and I was doing it on my lunch break and at night after the kids were in bed or when I was on my lunch break. So then I took it. They told me, okay, it's the GD. You've got to, it's two days. You go, you have four hours of tests on one day and four hours of tests on another. It's a total of eight hours of testing. I don't know what it is now, but that's what it was a while ago. Yeah. So look at this list and book your appointment. So I book it and I show up and I'm like downtown, like where there's really bad neighborhood. Um, Uh-oh. Everybody else who showed up to take the test were people who were even more down and out than I was, right? I like, I still have all my teeth. And it was like something else. Um, and I was thinking, oh my God, is my life ever going to improve? Is this my future? Is this my class? Basically, I was thinking, right? After all this hustling, is this my class? So I'm like, I'm just going to do this test as quick as I can. Because I don't want to come here two days in a row. I'm going to do eight hours of testing in the four hours. <laughs> do these tests, power, 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 through the test. And sure enough, I finished. The guy kept coming by and checking because he kept thinking I was cheating or something because I was just going through them. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I may or may not have passed, but whatever. And I did. Mm. And I was like, I passed it with like one of the highest scores. Not that it's important to have a high score on your GED, but yes. So, wow. That feels was- good. <laughs> I was like, that was the first thing I ever got. Like, I never sat in a classroom in my life. My life was a classroom, I suppose you could say that. But yeah. And so I got this GED and I was so excited. So I go to the community college and I talked to a counselor and she's okay. You passed. You might want to take a remedial math or something because you said you struggled there. But In theory, you could sign up for classes, but it's going to be very hard because classes are going to be hard because you've never been to school. I told her I hadn't been to school. Mm. And I'm like, okay, 
Let me just try one class. So I was like so excited. I've never been to a class. I got my notebooks. Like, oh. And I sat in the very front row and I was taking all my notes. Oh my God, tell me more. Really? Wow. <laughs> Everyone else is like, what the hell is wrong with this, with this lady? <laughs> First of all, she's 10 years too old to be in this class. Maybe not 10, five or six years too old to be in this class. And then secondly, she's sitting in the front row, raising her hand and asking the most absurd, asinine questions, taking notes and like teachers every word. It was like some stupid community college, just some random, I don't know, math class or something. And um, I was shocked. I got an A in the class and I was just stupefied. This whole time, like my whole life, I was thinking college is like this big secret. Yeah. Again, remember, because I don't belong. The nice house is not for me. The eating at a restaurant is not for me. The going to college and being part of that, those special people who know all these great things, like that's never going to be for me. So it was just shocking. And then I'm like, okay, well, let me take a few more. Let me take a few more. And before I knew it, I had a bachelor's degree like that. And I'm like, you know what? I can plug away for another year and get a master's. Let me just do that. Boom. So I went in like a four and a half year span from not having a high school diploma to getting a master's degree. Wow. It wasn't without its trials though, because I was trying to still support four kids, remember? And so I was taking a bus and a train to work and I would put all my textbooks in my pack and I would read them on the bus and read them on my lunch break. And then when I would get home, after I would feed the kids, clean the house, do the laundry, put them to bed, help them with their homework, then I would sit down and do my homework. So there was like four or five years where I was sleeping maybe five hours a night. It's amazing. And just getting it done. Just, I'm just thinking, I'm just gotta, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. We had a lot of challenges on the home front because now I have you know, these two step kids who don't know me and I had no reference for how to be a good parent. I, I wasn't even capable of parenting myself. I had my children, I, I didn't know how to parent myself, I clearly didn't know how to parent children, clearly didn't know how to parent stepchildren. So. <laughs> I'm just like making the whole thing up as I go along. And then now when I think about it, I made so many mistakes. I was thinking, why didn't I do that differently? You know, why didn't I do this or that? And my kids, I didn't spend enough time with them. I was working full time. I was going to school. So who the hell has time for an internship? (laughs) Four kids and a job. Oh, God. And now, you know, now that they're all grown and left the house, I always question, I should have spent more time with them. Maybe I shouldn't have taken that extra class. Maybe I should have on to that PTA conference or something. I don't know. I just, I, I wish, I wish I didn't have to raise myself and put myself through school while trying to support a family and trying to raise children. It's too many things at once. Yeah. Did the best I could with what I had at the time. And it's just, you always feel like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. When I was a child, I was mothering my brothers and sisters because yeah. My mother couldn't be bothered half the time or we were in some big combo home and I would have to run around looking out for them so, to make sure they were getting fed and they weren't getting spanked and they had clothes on and stuff like that. And, or when we were in the street, making sure my little brother, his shirt was tucked in, his shoes were tied. If I had a cookie, I would give it to him because he was my little brother and that sort of thing. So 
Um, always feeling responsible. And then having to bury my brother. <laughs> Talk about feeling responsible. And then moving to the United States. <laughs> I'm still responsible like for all of these things. It's, it's, it was a very heavy load. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, when I graduated, I dragged all my kids. I'm like, you are going to freaking watch me walk that thing. <laughs> you're going to sit there and you're going to clap for me. <laughs> There's not many people who graduate who show up with four kids almost as tall as them clapping. <laughs> but I was one of those. I was so happy. Put my little hat on, my robe, my whole thing. Took all the pictures. It's one of those things where you, your life starts later. It's almost like there's two lives. There's the old life and then there's the new life. And you, you're doing things in your 30s and 40s that you should have been doing in your 20s. Right? Yeah. Or earlier. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's hard to know what was more difficult, the sporadic childhood or the struggle to make something of yourself after it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That's amazing, though, that that, that, that's amazing what you did. That is really just incredible. That took a lot of fortitude. I hear you, but it's almost like you don't feel like you have a choice. Yeah. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> yeah. But like it's yeah, like that's just that yeah. or drown. And I have a lot of friends I grew up with who I, I know drowned. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew I know this. You're looking on side to side like my best friend I grew up with. Sh- yeah, they pass away. They have a far existence when they are living. You don't know what potential people could have if they'd gotten a fair start. That's true for everyone. You see somebody who's homeless, you can't judge anyone because you don't know where they came from. Yeah. Yes, very true. So you went and got your master's degree. And then when did you let your hair down and start being like, okay, now I can chill out and live and figure out what I want and all that kind of stuff? I feel like I still sometimes need to do that. (laughs) I I definitely was able to breathe. But here's the thing. Like, if you spend your life in survival mode, it's very difficult to turn it off. It's like like Mm -hmm. like PTSD where things are okay. We're good. You're still looking around the corner for when it's all going to blow up again. Yeah. Yeah. Or any little thing that is not really such a big deal becomes a big deal. Because it reminds you or brings back something in your subconscious where you're back to the struggle again. Yeah, or sometimes just needing, <clears throat> like your brain learned how to function on emotions and fear. So you have to sort of <laughs> almost like make that chaos for yourself so that you can function. It's a lot of unlearning and relearning. Yeah. And it's a lot of always being in overdrive. Always. Like nothing is good enough. Right. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) You know, I could have done better. And and, and as honestly, as a mom, even moms, normal moms always do that. You get mom guilt, right? Mm. I could have done better. I could have done this. I could have done that. You do a lot of that. I've become very introspective. I do give a lot of thought into why I did something and why I felt a certain way and learning 
who I am and learning to know yourself is really unusual because we never gave that much thought. Yeah. No. Oh gosh. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Am I an introvert? Am I an extrovert? I don't know. I had to stand up and sing who in front of a bunch of strangers who cared if I was an introvert. (laughs) 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 Just basic stuff like that. Yeah. There's a lot of that. I did. I did in the career sense. I I got a job for Microsoft and that segued into other IT related jobs. And it's shocking to me every time I turn around and they say, Oh, you did this. Now you get another responsibility or now you're a manager now you're a director and i'm like shit (laughs) how did i become a director how did i become responsible for these people and their careers all over the world in this huge company and how am i having to stand up now and make big presentations and put together strategic plans and meet with executives and travel the world for work and visit. Now I'm traveling. Well, not now because of COVID, but traveling the world for work is very different from traveling the world when you're begging. Yeah. You get a corporate credit card. Guess what? (laughs) Wipe it and stay stay at the Marriott. Mind blown, right? Or when you're hungry, you can just swipe it and somebody will bring room service to your room. It's it's shocking every time I stop to think of it. And I think all of the humiliation and the difficulties I experienced in my life have made me a very compassionate when it comes to working with people. Like if someone shows up and says, I can't do this, I'll take the time with them. It It translates into how I relate to others. From on the professional side, I think it's the weakness is my strength in that sense. But it's hard when you're hanging out with high-powered career people and they have a shared history in the sense like they all went to high school. They all know what this movie is. <laughs> they all understand this cultural reference. And I'm sitting there smiling half the time. I'm like, I don't know what the hell they're talking about, but they're all <laughs> laughing. So I'm going to laugh too. <laughs> There's still that feeling of still being an outsider. Yeah. And I don't think I'll ever not feel like an outsider. I don't understand the concept of roots. My husband has roots. Like when I met him, he was in the city where he was born and he would drive through his old neighborhood and everybody would wave at him. How's your mom? Blah, 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 you know? And then he would go to parties and he would be bumping into people and, and he had roots. And the concept of roots is so bizarre to me. Yeah. Feeling like a leaf in the wind, like you're always <laughs> unmoored. I'll move to a new house. Cool. This is my house now. Tomorrow I'll move to another house. Cool. This is my house now. Yeah. Sell all my furniture, sell my car. Okay, fine. Sell my furniture, sell my car. I'll just get another one. <laughs> the lack of attachment to things yeah. Yeah. or to places in the sense of like, I belong here. Yeah. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I definitely do get attached very sentimentally to certain things like that. There's a few things that I'll hang on to for dear life, but yeah. <laughs> When I was reading about third culture kids, it helped me understand a little bit more like what role our actual travel from place to place to place played reason to some of our 
I guess, personality or, mm-hmm. but with us, it's always just such a, for example, you, like what was the driving force behind it? Was it that you were raised in such a way that we were always supposed to be reaching for more, reaching the top more, more, or is it that you lost out on so much in life that drove you to want more? You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of different layers that come into play with us. Is it so hard for us to trust people because of all the hurt that we've had? Or is it that we're just trying to prepare for the loss that's never really going to happen? Mm-hmm. Those kind of things, it intertwines for me. And it's really weird because you're like, it could be either of those things. It could be both of those things. It could be all the more things. There's the nature versus nurture, right? Yeah. So maybe if I had actually gone to school my whole life and... I would have gotten into an elite school as opposed to a state college. Maybe I'd be creating a cure for cancer. I don't know. (laughs) But maybe potentially I could be doing more given where I started. This is where I ended. It could be that. This could also be nurture, right? Nothing's taken for granted. Nothing's given to you. You got to grab it with two hands every time it comes. Then you got to hold it real hard, real tight, because it could slip away at any minute. that feeling yeah exactly Mm -hmm. yeah you were asking me like when did you stop when did you say now I can enjoy and I I realized that I never really did yes you have moments of enjoyment but I never sat back and was like okay I'm here now yeah it was just a constant like pressure cooker environment that I created where I was responsible for everyone for everything you have to do that to feel safe right if your experience nothingness your whole life you have to hold on you have to control things in order to feel safe and that was to answer your question that could be some of it where if i don't control the outcome of this then i'm a goner then everything's going down the toilet like i gotta grab this i gotta drive the car if i don't drive it it's gonna go off a cliff so So you do find yourself doing that a lot. And then there was COVID and all that. We were all locked up. Mm -hmm. Came to a point where I was like, I don't know myself anymore. I'm not sure that I've ever purposefully decided things or if things have just happened to me. I know that sounds ridiculous, but like Mm -hmm. when you you first had kids, you didn't sit down and say, oh, here's my life plan. I would like three children. I would like them to be two years spaced apart and whatever. (laughs) People do that. People get married and then they have these plans. Um, (laughs) But no one ever told me that I could have a plan. No one ever told me anything. No one ever told me my body belonged to me and that I could say no if something was making me uncomfortable. No one even bothered to tell me that information. And so it just didn't occur to me whether or not my choices were all purposeful or not. And I felt like I had been boxed into something. And I took an entire one-year break. I moved away away from my husband, separated completely. Okay. Terribly broke his heart. I needed a year to myself. And it was the first time and only time I had ever lived alone and ever had to worry only about myself. My my kids are already grown and and my stepkids, they're all grown. They're all in their mid-20s. Yeah. And I was like, okay. I need to know what it feels like to wake up and not have to do anything for anybody. I need to understand that feeling. (sighs) I need to understand the feeling of not being responsible (laughs) to somebody else 
And I need to spend time communing with myself. Like I need to know myself. I don't understand my anxieties. I don't understand why I feel the way I feel sometimes. And I haven't bothered to try and understand it because I've just been pressing forward, keep pressing. We had these tapes that there was one about being a fighter. The whole freaking tape was these quotes about how to be a fighter and all these songs about not quitting. I don't know if you remember that. It's a whole tape about not quitting and all these beautiful songs about reaching for the stars and not being a quitter. So somehow that internalized. So I was just not Mm -hmm. going to be a quitter and I was just going to go. And that, that gets to you at some point. Yeah. And I didn't know what it was that was wrong with me, but I just knew it was. And like, I, I had to, I couldn't breathe. I could not breathe. Hmm. So yeah, so I moved away for a whole year. And just put it around. I just worked, just lived in my own little apartment, my own little furniture. Took long walks, <laughs> <laughs> Took long walks in the woods <laughs> every day, basically. Talked to mm-hmm. myself a lot. <laughs> It was, I think, the very first time in my life that I was beholden to nothing and no one. Yeah. It felt like everything was a, was a purposeful choice, not made to survive. Because every other choice up until then was a choice for survival or a choice for someone else. Like when you're a mom, yeah. you make a choice based on what's good for your kids. Yeah, exactly. So I did that. And then... I reconnected with my husband again, and I'm back with him. Oh, nice. That's good. And I moved out of my little rental apartment and moved back into it. But there was a year. It was a year of, I think, introspection and me really learning about myself. And again, this is something you're supposed to do, I think, when you're in your early 20s, is live alone. And understand what your tastes are and what you want to do. (laughs) And yes, I'm doing everything out of order in my life. There was supposed to be a sequence. but Mm. I I didn't know there was one sequence, so I did it all out of order. I had the kids first, then I went to school, then I separated. (laughs) That's interesting that you got back together with your husband. Because that was a, a choice that originally you probably made out of survival. Mm-hmm. for your kids and all of that so it's interesting to me it wasn't just a choice out of survival you actually I needed to see that for myself but this, it's interesting to me that you did you were like okay yeah that was the right choice I'm going back yeah you know. and I've had a few really good things happen to me and meeting him was one of those mm. We know when you're damaged goods. Somebody decided that the rotten banana in the supermarket was still worth buying. I always take the rotten bananas off and leave them there and just take the nice yellow ones home. Somebody decided they wanted to make banana bread, so they were okay with the rotten banana and taking them home. Or someone saw the benefits of having all that experience in that life. Somebody that will understand them and fight for them when they need someone else to fight for them type of a thing. Yeah. And and he's been a good partner. Nothing I will say will ever shock him. He'll take it all in stride. It must be very weird. Yeah. Sometimes we go and meet up with my brother, my other brother, when he's living, or like some of my friends, from ex-friends from the cult. We sit around the table and we all just talk a lot of shit and make a lot of insider jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Insider jokes and um, 
he just sits there and smiles and says, that's pretty funny. You eat powdered eggs? I wonder what those taste like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, you know, nasty. You were so poor, you ate chicken feed? I'm like, yeah, we ate chicken feed. Like, yep, yep. Months, every morning we woke up and ate chicken feed. He says, no way. Sure. Yeah, that's the way I treat me. It's like, it's just more than one continent. <laughs> we didn't even know it was chicken feed until somebody told us. Yeah, we had also not just cracked wheat, but cracked corn, which is the same thing. It's the kind of corn you throw to chickens. Like this dried, looks like popcorn, but not. And it's cracked up like that. We boil it to infinity until it was chewable. That was Amazing. <laughs> yeah, but it's really funny seeing things through his eyes. It must be really odd to be seeing and hearing these strange Americans things and doing just the most bizarre things. That's something practically nobody else can understand, really. Yeah. <laughs> because it's just so bizarre. <laughs> okay, wrap your mind around this and you start talking and then they're like, oh my God. And you're like, dude, that's 1% of it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <gasps> Most people have one strange variable in their life, like one family member with mental illness or maybe poverty or maybe abuse, or maybe they traveled a lot. Maybe they had a lot of brothers and sisters, but then somebody who has all of those things, like, <laughs> a really long algebra equation, like so many variables, so many alphabet letters, who would have made that combination? Have you ever done that, that ACE scoring thing? Oh my God. I have. Oh, yeah. As soon as I did it, I was like, okay. Yeah. We realized it was 10. 10 out of 10 all. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I really do appreciate sometimes talking about the kind of stuff that we did go through because it just reminds me of how amazing it is that we're all still here. Those of us that are. Even if there's some of us that are like, don't have their shit together they're here hanging on through a lot of Mm -hmm. stuff most people wouldn't hang on through yeah and even people who look like they have their shit together this is still you know by all accounts i should have all my shit together because i did all these things you're supposed to do but went to school did this did that got the good job yeah i still struggle every day to keep my sanity To understand myself, to recognize my mistakes, to show vulnerability, to be humble enough to ask for help. Like asking for help? Shit, that's not something I ever want to do. I spent so long fucking begging. You couldn't even eat a meal without asking somebody to give it to you for free. I I don't want to have to go and ask for help. Mm -mm. Like I am so tired of the humiliation. Yeah. Are just being left to figure life out for so many years by yourself. Exactly. And now I'm thinking, okay, if I don't know how to do something, I can actually go and find a mentor who can show me how to do something. I can ask for help. I can demonstrate a little bit of vulnerability. And it's just a constant process of growing as a person. And, and, and I think even though I hit some milestones, there's so many more milestones that I, I need to be hitting to progress, to be the, the more complete person at peace with myself and truly loving myself. If somebody thought that I was somebody worth loving, I should think that of myself too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
That's that. That's, I think that's a tough one. That's definitely one of the toughest. That one. But it's also, to me, it's like the most important. In my opinion, it's the most important thing you can do for your healing. Mm-hmm. Because it's all centered. If if you're doing it for yourself, then it's because you love yourself. Yeah. For sure, there's like the self love portion that we like that we can always grow in that most of us need to grow. <laughs> Being raised the way that we were for the first fifteen to twenty years of our lives on constant like <laughs> DEFCON one, just no unending DEFCON one. <laughs> A lot of us are, like you said, very compassionate and empathetic because our safety mechanisms were built so that when we walk into a situation, we're not looking for the fun person, the happy person, the good thing that's going on. We see everything that's wrong where you are because that's the only way that you kept yourself safe. And it's so easy to pick up on just the slightest little things. And then it's really hard for me not to react really hard back to them. If it's, yeah. if it's somebody that I love, whether a relationship or a friendship that you're exploring, something can go wrong and next thing I know I've pulled back I've just been like okay you don't get in that door anymore <laughs> no that was like that for years but after meeting my husband I kept thinking something's gonna go wrong the bubble's gonna pop every time something good happens you keep holding your breath because something bad's gonna happen you just know you're gonna be undercut it doesn't matter what yeah you saved up enough money. Oh, but something's going to happen. Your car's going to break. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. If somebody gives you a compliment. Oh, watch out because you're going to fall on your ass as soon as you walk out the door. You know? And it's just that feeling of like impending doom. Yeah. Something is always going to go wrong. And you've got to tell yourself that you can't live like that. I'm just constantly in fear that something's going to happen to my kids of course i'm in fear because i fucking had to bury my brother because all these things went wrong with him so now every time something goes wrong with them it's defcon one in my mind yes young people make stupid choices date the wrong person they quit jobs for no reason they start going to school stop going to school switch majors 12 times and don't graduate like i get that's all normal behavior or generally acceptable behavior but for me, like, it's just induces so much panic because I remember being late teens, early 20s and wandering the streets, really, and not having anything. That, that constant fear of we're going to lose everything. <laughs> My kids are not going to have food to eat. And that's just a stupid fear to have because it's clear I have enough money. No one's going to starve. You can't get that fear of impending doom. And I've talked to other ex-cult members some of them wildly more financially successful than me and just clearly sitting on enough money that they never have to work. And they still worry. Oh, I'm going to end up in the street. I'm going to be homeless. My kids are going to have nothing. What happens when they find me out? They're going to find out that I'm actually not a great at that great at what I do, you know, <laughs> and then I'm going to lose it all. That's a common thing I hear a lot of. Yeah. Now, I suppose I'm supposed to be having a midlife crisis since all my kids left the house and left the home. And I now you're at that point. Okay, 45 years old. And 
what's next? Got another 40 years left of life in me. And how can I live those years in a better mental space than the first half of my life? (laughs) If all goes well, I'll live another 40 years. What kinds of life choices am I going to make now? Now thinking about things like retirement. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking, oh my God, things I never thought I would think because we always thought that we were going to die in the end times. We'd be raptured by the time we were 15. We'd be flying in the sky to a pyramid that was in the center of the moon. Come on, really? (laughs) (laughs) And so we didn't have to worry. And now, okay, all of that was a lie. I've gone, now I'm in the middle of my life, middle-aged and okay, what what am I going to do to retire? Hobbies. How about I get a hobby? My brother told me, get a hobby. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what could I do for a hobby? Just like racking my brain, trying to think of, okay, what could be fun? What could be fun? (laughs) It's just the luxury of thinking like that never occurred to us. So every day is something that was not planned for as we were growing up. So now I'm thinking, okay, open my retirement accounts. Maybe I should invest in property so that when I'm old, I won't be paying rent. I'm just like thinking about these things, right? Where do I, I would like to take a trip once a year. Let me make sure that I've had that budgeted. I, I like to see everything as a whole new adventure, right? So I'm, yeah. Like I'm entering into the, the next part of the adventure. I don't know how many phases there are, but there were, have clearly been up until now three phases. The childhood phase, the getting out and figuring your life and trying to survive and make money so you can eat and live phase. And now the third phase, you did all of that. And now you should be in a steady state, right? What do you do when you're in a steady state? (laughs) (laughs) Now that you're not drowning, now it's time to look at yourself and solve those things, solve those little get those little knots out and massage those little knots out and the war has ended so now you got to clean your wounds and go to physical therapy and yeah all those things so that's how it feels yeah yeah for sure it's a very good description (laughs) that's it in a nutshell Uh crazy a crazy life lots of twists and turns (laughs) yeah I really do try and stop and be grateful. Sometimes I forget. I get so hard on myself. Like, oh, I messed up this deliverable. I had to make a certain time or whatever. And how could I make this mistake? And then I stop. Okay, remember where you came from. Remember where you started. Take a breath. (laughs) Take a breath. Our breaking this cycle was so extreme. Because we started off in such an extreme place. It wasn't just reimagining the route. We had to turn around and go a completely different direction. So now I'm trying to live with the knowledge that life is good and beautiful. And I have to purposefully look for those good and beautiful things. Again, because of how we were, like everything is not always going to be gloom and doom. It really is okay to wake up and do nothing. I haven't tried it yet, but I heard it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing your story with us. It's amazing all the things that you went through and overcame and where you are today. Governing yourself 
and, and, and being who you are and showing up in your truth is, is big. And it's still something I need to learn how to do myself. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, one of those ever long quests. <laughs> well, we better wrap it up. You're so, you're incredible. That's it was so uh, nice talking with you. Thank you. Very amazing. And you can see people when they have light in their eyes. I can tell when someone has light in their eyes and I, I, I can look at their faces. This is a person with light and you guys clearly are those people. And, and you can see that. You can cross with people and you can read them And when somebody has the light and somebody does not. Yeah. That is what we do have. We have the light. <laughs> sure. That's awesome. So we'll close today with, as we say always, um, stay brave and remember that every butterfly was once a caterpillar.